If you're in Mark 7, say amen out loud. Be covering verses 24 through verse 37. The title of the message today is simply Coming and Going. That's the title. Coming and Going. If you think about the Christian life, that's really what it's about. It's about coming and going. Here's what I mean by that. First, we have to come to Jesus. And thankfully, when we come to Jesus, He saves us. He redeems us. He forgives us. He justifies us. He changes us. How many can remember the day you came to Jesus? But our Christian life doesn't stop with coming to Jesus. Because after we come to Jesus, we go for Jesus. We don't just keep what Jesus has done for us to ourselves. We tell somebody. We go to others. We bring others. We influence others. That's the essence of the Christian life. We find and follow Jesus. Then we help somebody else find and follow Jesus. Our text this morning shows us what it looks like to come to Jesus. And it shows us what it looks like to go for Jesus. We're going to study how Mark combines two stories to to create this theme. Verses 24 through 27, a story of a woman who who went to Jesus and asked for a cure on behalf of her daughter. And then the last part of the story talks about some people that took their friend who couldn't talk or hear uh, for divine intervention. The majority of the passage is going to teach us how we should come to Jesus. The last couple verses of the passage are going to teach us how we should go for Jesus. So when I get to those last couple verses about going for Jesus, um, our message is coming to a close. Let's look at verses 24 through 37. We're going to read them so you can get kind of a, a, a broad picture, a big picture of the story. And from thence, verse 24, he, that's Jesus, arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon and entered into a house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. This is just speaking of the popularity of Jesus at this time. For a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation. And she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. But Jesus said unto her, let the children first be filled. For it is not me to take the children's bread and to cast it under the dogs. And she answered and said unto him, yes, Lord. Yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, For this saying, go thy way. The devil has gone out of thy daughter. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out, and her daughter laid upon the bed. Now here's the second story. And again, departing from the coast of Tyre and Sodom, he came into the seas of Galilee through the midst of the coast of Decapolis. And they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they beseech him to put his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude put his fingers into his ears and he spit and touched his tongue and looking up to heaven, he sighed and saith unto him, Ephatha, that is be opened. And straightway his ears were opened and the string of his tongue was loosed and he spake plain and he charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them so much, the more a great deal they published it and were beyond measure astonished saying, he hath done all things well. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. How should we come to Jesus? And how should we go for Jesus? We'll answer those two questions. How should we come to Jesus? Well, several ways. Notice first, you should come to Jesus with boldness. The woman who's come into Jesus here would have needed more than the normal amount of boldness. And I, I want to uh, give you some observations about this woman that makes me come to that conclusion. Number one, she was a woman. This is a patriarchal society. 
I'm glad that our society doesn't view women, at least in our, our society, our country, doesn't view women as they did back in the Bible days in the Middle East. But they were, view, in, they were viewed as inferior. Plus, women didn't approach men in public. It was socially unethical. So she already had that going against her. On top of that, the Bible says she was a Greek woman. That means she was a Gentile. She was a non-Jew. She wouldn't have normally been accepted by a Jewish man. Then she was a Greek Syrophoenician woman. That was her race, her nationality. The Syrophoenicians were descendants of the Canaanites. If you know the Old Testament, you know Canaanites were a long-standing enemy to the Jewish people. So she wasn't just a woman. She wasn't just a, a non-Jewish woman. She was also an enemy of the Jews. She was a Greek Syrophoenician woman, it goes further, she was from Tyre and Sidon. This is an area that was engulfed in pagan idolatry, especially the worship of the fertility goddess Ashtaroth. So she's an idolater, approaching the true God. On top of that, she was a Greek Syrophoenician woman from Tyre and Sidon. It makes it worse. She had a really big need. She wasn't coming to Jesus and asking for help for her daughter that had strep throat. Or a broken leg. Her little girl was demon possessed. This is no small need. Put all those observations together. I think you would agree. She might have been a little intimidated to come to Jesus. She had a lot to overcome just to get the nerve to approach the Messiah. And I wonder if there might be anybody in here today that might be intimidated to come to Jesus themselves. Or to bring your need to Jesus. Because maybe you come from a family background where none of your parents or grandparents were church going people. And if you're honest, it kind of intimidates you that you would or even could become a first generation Christian. Maybe if you decided to come to Jesus, you would have to come to him with a life full of regretful choices. And that intimidates you because in the past, these choices at worst have made you feel hopeless, but at best they've embarrassed you. It could be the nature of what you're bringing to Jesus that intimidates you. Your problem's no small problem. Your issue is no small issue. And if you come to Jesus, you'll be bringing him something very big, like, like a broken marriage or a troubling addiction or a massive amount of financial debt or a rebelliously wayward child. And if you're honest, your need to you seems so big that, that you are naturally projecting that same sense of impossibility on God. What might intimidate you today about coming to Jesus is simply the fact that you've been to him so many times before. And yet here you are coming back to Jesus for the same thing, or maybe not the same thing, but something that's different, but just as big. Naturally, because of your personality, you feel like you're a bother to Jesus or that somehow he's getting irritated by your continual request. Here's what you need to know today. If you're going to come to Jesus, you need boldness. Hebrews 4.16 is a beautiful passage of scripture. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The truth today is you might have a need or, or an issue or a problem or a crisis that intimidates you, but it doesn't intimidate God. If you'll come to him boldly, here's the promise of the scripture. You'll find grace and mercy and help in your time of need, no matter what that need may be. So don't let the size of your problem or the duration of your problem or the cost of your problem or the people involved in your problem intimidate you from coming to the only one who can truly solve your problem. Come to Jesus boldly. Never be intimidated 
to come to the throne of God. The next way in which we should come to Jesus is found in a short phrase in verse 26. It says, the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation, watch, and she besought him. First, you come to Jesus with boldness. Second, you come to Jesus with persistence. The phrase she besought him literally means that she kept asking. Further proof that she was being persistent is in the parallel passage in, in Matthew's gospel, this same account in chapter 15. He depicts this lady as coming to Jesus with such a loud voice and, and for so long that his own disciples got irritated by her and said, Jesus, send this woman away. Further proof that she wouldn't stop coming to Jesus with this need. And let's be honest, that's normally how we view persistence, isn't it? As irritating. Like when a child keeps asking for something. Mommy, me, me, me. Shut up, kid. So we want to say. We normally view that kind of persistence as irritating, and even selfish, not praiseworthy. We try to raise them out of that. But that's not the case when it comes to asking Jesus for something. In fact, in the New Testament, there are examples that Jesus gives us that shows us that God actually delights in our persistent asking. Like Luke chapter 11, when his disciples said, teach us how to pray. And so he taught them what we call now the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. Our Father which be in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know that prayer. After that prayer, he branches off into a parable or short story. And the whole purpose of the story is illustrating that God delights in our consistent persistence and shameless persistence in prayer. And it's about a guy that goes to his friend's house in the middle of the night knocks on his door and doesn't stop knocking until his friend answers the door. That's a big deal back then because they were all one-bedroom houses. So, so when you knocked on the door, you woke up the entire household, and kid, including the kids. That's not good. So daddy had to step over every single one of the kids and the crib just to get to the door. And when he answered the door, he, he answered the door because the friend would not stop knocking. And then the friend asked for some bread, and he said, I'm only giving you the bread because of your importunity. You know what that means? Shameless persistence. Anybody have a friend like that? They don't care what time it is. They don't care how it makes you feel. They don't care how it puts you out. They're going to ask for anything they want. Yeah, keep that friend at a distance. You definitely don't want that friend to be your neighbor. And if they are, don't look at them right now, okay? But he said, you know what? Because of your shameless persistence, you weren't even ashamed or embarrassed to wake us up in the middle of the night. That's how desperate you were. I'm going to give you this bread. And God said this. If you just keep asking and seeking and knocking, I'm not going to reluctantly get out of bed and go answer the door because I have to. No, no, no. I'm the antithesis to that. I am actually going to run to the door and I delight in you asking over and over and over and over. My question is, why does God work that way? If he has the power and the ability to answer us right away and fix our situation just like that, why doesn't he do that? Why does he continually ask us, ask and seek and knock? Why do we have to come to him more than once? Here's, here's why. Because he wants to keep us in a posture of dependence upon him. We get this idea as parents. We don't, or I should say at least shouldn't bell our kids out of every hard circumstance right away. Why? Because it's the difficulties of life that teach them how to endure. So the difficulties they face at school or, or, or in athletics or, or while learning an instrument or in the midst of a difficult relationship or house chores. All these things get difficult, but that's what teaches them perseverance. 
My second job ever, my first job was cleaning dishes at Golden Corral. My second job was pushing carts at Walmart. After the first five days of pushing carts, I realized I don't like this job. <laughs> my mom and dad would not let me quit that job. They made me persevere, and I'm reaping a harvest of that decision even today because there are times in my adult life when I'm doing something I don't like to do that's hard to do, that's unpleasant to do, and, and I, my mind always goes back to wearing the orange vest before they had the machines. You had to push them with righty and lefty. And when, uh, my mind always goes back to when my mom and dad made me do something I didn't want to do. It taught me perseverance. Sadly, our country is starting to reap the harvest of parents that didn't make their kids persist when they were younger. Now their kids are older and they're entitled and lazy and wimpy. Can I get an amen? amen. That's not the message, but it's the truth. Here's what I'm saying. God is the perfect parent. And he knows when we need a, a season of persistence. And he will sometimes require us to come to him over and over and over because he knows it's what we need to remain in a posture of dependence upon him. He says, you're going to have to wait now, but it's going to give you strength to wait down the road. When God does this, church, don't bail out. Don't quit. Don't even get frustrated. Don't leave church because your expectation of God was disappointed. Hey, hear me. Persist. Keep asking and keep knocking and keep seeking because God delights in you knocking on his door no matter what time of night it is. The story continues to move through this woman's conversation with Jesus. We get to the first red letters of the story. It's when Jesus is going to talk for the first time. And this is going to require some explanation because what Jesus says almost sounds insulting at first. Verse 27. She asked Jesus, can you, can you go cast forth the devil out of my daughter? Jesus said unto her, let the children first be filled. For it is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it unto the dogs. Get this, watch here. He, he's telling her in the first phrase, let the children first be filled. He's telling her, you're not the priority to me. That's the implication. It gets worse. You're a dog. What is Jesus doing? Well, he's using the analogy of a meal and who the priority would be at a meal. Children first, then the dog. I've been waiting all week to preach this passage of Scripture. This is one of my favorite passages. Jesus is making a healthy comparison between human beings and dogs. And he clearly states that children and dogs are not the same. Finally, on the authority of the word of God, I can now preach that dogs should not be treated like humans. What do you mean, pastor? Humans sleep inside a warm bed. Dogs sleep outside. I don't need anybody talking back to me during this message. Dogs sleep outside in a dog house. At best, if you're going to let them sleep on the inside of the house, they need to be like in the laundry room floor or something. Not in your bed. The book of Hebrews says that the bed ought to be undefiled. It's in the book. If you let a furry creature roll around at your feet, that's unnecessary. That's unbiblical. Are we on the same page? Every head bowed and every eye closed. Let's sing, Let's sing just as I am. I surrender all. Let's put our dogs on the altar today. <laughs> hey, listen, 
I, I, I gave you a preview to the church on Wednesday night that I was going to talk about dogs. And I had a, a church member by the name of Steve Astala. You might know him as one of the ushers back there. <laughs> Every day since Wednesday, he has sent me a picture of their dog called Buttons. And it says, I'm praying that God uses these pictures to soften your heart before you preach <laughs> on Sunday. <laughs> well, you pushed me to rebellion, Steve. It made it worse. Seriously, though, Jesus' analogy is making the point uh, that a good parent, right, is not going to take food from a child's plate if they're still hungry to feed the dog. The priority is I'm going to feed my offspring first, then, then I'll feed the dog. What then was Jesus trying to say to the woman who needed help? Well, remember, she's a Gentile. She's a non-Jew. Put this together. The, the Jews called Gentiles dogs as a derogative term because they, they, they believed that Gentiles, non-Jews, were unclean. Very, very racist. The Jews would have used a, a derogative term when they called the Gentiles dog that, that meant more like a, a, a mutt from the street. This, this dirty dog, diseased dog that would scavenge the neighborhood trash cans for food and were always a nuisance. The, the word for dog that Jesus chose to use was actually less severe. You can study it on your own. It wasn't the same exact derogative term, but it was still a dog. It just meant more of a puppy or a friendly house pet than a mutt on the street. He was more gentle about it at least. Nevertheless, he implied the woman was a dog. She wasn't the priority. And she, yes, a nice dog, but she was still a dog. What woman wants to be called a dog? I mean, my, my wife wouldn't like that even if I said, but it's a nice dog. You look like a nice dog. She wouldn't like that. Why did Jesus do that? First, it's because he was telling her what I think she already knew, that he actually came to earth to preach repentance to the Jew first. Eventually, through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, the gospel will go to the entire world. And it has, thank goodness, to us non-Jewish people, we got the gospel. But not until it first went to the Jew. But the second more applicable reason for why Jesus called her a dog was because Jesus often used provocative and shocking and even offensive words to test one's sincerity of faith and humility of spirit. You remember when he came to the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler came to him. And said, Jesus, I want to get saved. And Jesus said, okay, then go home and sell everything you have. To those around him that knew the rich young ruler, that would have been offensive to even say that. Because that was the rich young ruler's inheritance. And that, that, those were his belongings. And, and, and Jesus was saying, hey, I, want, I want to test your spirit of humility. Are you going to get pridefully offended? Do you really mean you're going to follow me? And what did the rich young ruler do? He walked away sorrowful. He said, I'm not getting rid of all my stuff. He was offended in pride. Because of that. John chapter 6. All the people wanted Jesus to feed them with that magical bread that appears out of nowhere. And you said, hold on, I fed you enough. What you need to understand is that you're not going to get eternal life by eating of this magic bread. You're going to get eternal life by eating of the eternal bread. The bread of life. you got to eat of my body and drink of my blood if you want eternal life. And he was using some very, very provocative terms to call them to a point of repentance. And what did the people do? It says in John 6 that it was very hard for them to hear that. Word hard is sclerosis. Like, like it was crippling to them. It was offensive to them. And the next phrase says they walked away and didn't return. They never came back to hear Jesus again or follow Jesus anymore. Here's what Jesus is doing, the same thing he did with those people. He knows this woman has a legitimate need, but he wanted to know if she had humility of spirit 
or she's going to walk away pridefully offended and look at her response in verse 28. And she answered and said unto him, yes, Lord. Someone just sent me pictures of a dog. I got to get this on Don't Disturb real quick because I'm going to be annoyed all day by this. Thank you, Dustin Hieronymus. Anyway, uh, verse 28, I was in the flow of a sermon. And she answered and said unto him, yes, Lord. Yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. What a humble response. Do you understand what this woman could have said? Jesus, how dare you put my sick daughter on the back burner for your favorite people, the Jews? How, you, how dare you call me a dog or imply that I'm a dog? You're Jesus. You're, you're supposed to love everybody and accept everybody. How dare you talk to me like that? I'm out of here. She could have stormed off, pridefully offended, but she didn't. She recognized that she was unworthy of his time and unworthy of his attention and unworthy of his healing power. She even humbly acknowledged that even if she wasn't worthy of getting the main course meal, she would be okay with eating the crumbs off the floor just like the dogs do. Okay, God, if I'm a dog, at least let me eat like one. Here's the point. You should come to Jesus with humility. Come to him with boldness and come to him with persistence, but come to him with Humility. Friend, please get this. You cannot come to the Savior in pride. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. D.L. Moody, a godly man, is quoted as saying this. Jesus sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. No one has ever been saved by the grace of God who thought they deserved it. Jesus will save anybody, but they have to first come to him with humility. Daniel Aiken asked a great question in his commentary on this text. He asked this, are you willing to see yourself as the dog you are, that you might be transformed in the child you might become? In other words, are you willing to acknowledge the depravity of your sin that separates you from the family of God? Are you willing to say, yes, Lord, I'm just a dog under the table with no rights whatsoever as a member of your family. And I acknowledge that nothing within me deserves a place at your table. Hey, if you're willing to come to Jesus with that kind of humility of spirit, then listen, in grace and mercy, our Savior will lift you up. No longer a dog, but a child. No longer a sinner, but a saint. No longer under the table, but seated at the table with him. You can get saved today. If you recognize you need to. Do you hear me? One of the most difficult things for me to do when I'm trying to lead someone to Christ is to first get them to realize they need Christ. One of the most difficult things to do is get someone to admit I'm lost. It's amazing when God and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God reveal to a person if I die right now, I'm going to hell. It's amazing, isn't it, Brother Mike, the, the humility that comes upon them whenever they really understand the depravity of their soul and the wickedness of their sin that separates them from God and how they are not right standing with God. I've seen grown men who I've never seen cry before. When they come to that reality, their shoulders start heaving. They're so humbled by that. But it's getting people to that point. It's getting people to the point where they, they don't think that that, that church is, is, is all they need. And outward demonstrations of holiness 
And religiosity is all they need. It's getting them to understand, I'm just a dog. I'm just a sinner. If all I can do is eat some of the crumbs of God's grace, that's good enough for me. And here's what, what is great. If you acknowledge that you're a sinner and all you need is crumbs, God will let you eat the full course meal of his grace sitting at his table. But if you want to just pull up a chair to God's table entitled and think, ah, I deserve God's best and God's goodness. Don't be surprised when you don't get any of it. If you're going to come to Jesus, you need to be humble when you do it. The end of the story is awesome. Not surprisingly, Jesus honors her humility. He heals her daughter of the unclean spirit before the woman even gets home. I love that. But as Mark does, he, he combines another story, he often does this. He just quickly goes uh, and follows Jesus into his next missionary journey or his next village or his next town. And, and now Jesus is going to leave Tyre and Sidon. He's going to pass through the region of Decapolis, that, that, that region that has 10, ten city-states. You, you might recognize this area from a few messages ago. It's the same place where Jesus encountered a demon-possessed man and he clothed that man. And put him in his right mind, Mark chapter 5. Now Jesus is going to be introduced to a deaf man and a mute man. And apparently the guy who can't hear or talk has some friends that brought him to Jesus. Look at verse 32. And they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they beseech him to put his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude, put his fingers into his ears, and he spit and touched his tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and saith him, Ephatha, which that is, be opened. And straightway his ears were opened, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spake plain. This is amazing. Guy couldn't talk, he, he couldn't hear. So Jesus spoke to him in a language he could understand. He, 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 the fingers placed in his ears and then removed meant this, I'm going to remove the blockage in your hearing. The spitting and the touching of the man's tongue, though weird, he did it so the man could understand. I'm going to remove the blockage in your mouth. The glance up to heaven meant it is God alone who's able to do this for you. And Jesus simply said, be open. And immediately the man could hear and speak probably for the first time in his life. Have you ever seen those videos where, where a little baby could hear for the first time? You got to watch those. Have a box of Kleenexes ready. But a doctor puts that hearing aid on that little baby and like a grin comes to that baby's face and their eyes open. It's those kind of videos and then videos of military people coming home to their family. Those two videos get me choked up every single time. I imagine the people that are seeing this are very touched. They're very, very moved. But I don't want you to miss a very important detail in verse 32. Had it not been for people that brought him, he might have never got to Jesus. The verse says, and they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And watch this. They beseech him. They beseech him to put his hand upon him. In other words, they knew this man wasn't going to get to Jesus by, by himself. So they brought him. On top of that, they beseeched or asked Jesus. And the same exact word for the word beseech there is the same exact word Mark used in verse 26 that was translated besought. They are just as persistent in asking for their friend to be healed as they were for the when the woman asked for Jesus to, to remove the unclean spirit from her daughter. Here's the point. You don't just need to come to Jesus with boldness or with persistence or with humility. Watch this. Sometimes the only way you'll get to Jesus is with a little help. There are times when getting to Jesus won't happen unless somebody helps you get there. 
how many salvation stories in here this morning would include a person who brought them to Jesus? The truth is that nearly everyone in here would be able to attach a person's name to their salvation story. Somebody in their life who brought them to the Lord. For you, it might have been a parent or a grandparent or a sibling or a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or a co-worker or a godly friend. It's likely that someone had to help you understand your need of a Savior. It's likely that someone had to help you understand what Jesus did for you. It's likely that someone had to help you get to church in the first place, have the courage to go to church. They had to sit by you at church. You ought to thank God for the person or people in your life that helped you find and follow Jesus. There's another person in your life you ought to thank God for. You ought to thank God for the person that brought you to Jesus. But you ought also to thank God for the person that beseeched him to intervene in your life. Talking about somebody that interceded on your behalf and prayed that you would come to Jesus. Could have been your wife praying for you to come to Jesus. Could have been your parents or your grandparents that prayed for you to come to Jesus. Could have been your children that prayed for you to come to Jesus. Could have been a pastor or a church member or a co-worker that prayed for you to come to Jesus. How many would testify today to the fact that you would not be where you are today with the Lord had it not been for somebody who prayed for you? Every one of us have people that have interceded for us. George Mueller, who wrote one of the most influential books on prayer in Christian history, tells a story about committing to pray for the salvation of five young men every single day. He prayed for 18 months before the first one was converted. And he said, I thank God, and then I pressed on. He prayed every day for five more years before the second was converted. And another six years before the third. 36 years later, he wrote that the last two were still not converted. And he said, I quote, but I hope in God. I pray on and look for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. In 1897, 52 years after he first started praying for these people, the final two were brought to faith. A few years after Mueller died. Hey, keep praying for those you love. Especially the ones that are lost. You understand that some people will never find and follow Jesus unless they get some help. Someone helped you. Someone prayed for you. If you have a prayer list that that, that you uh, follow every single day, I, I would encourage you to have a prayer list. Do you have any lost people on that prayer list? Who did you pray for this morning that you're burdened for that doesn't they don't know Jesus? I love the way Mark ends the story. Look at verse 36 and 37. And he charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so much more a great deal they published it and were beyond measure astonished, saying, He hath done all things well. He maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. See, these people weren't supposed to say anything about the miracle. But they couldn't keep but saying something The reason why they weren't supposed to say something is because the more they would talk, the more dangerous it would be for Jesus to do his public ministry and his time to die hadn't come yet. Yet these people who had just received a miracle would not stay quiet. And did you notice what they said? They they referenced both the past and the present. They said, he hath done all things well, past. Then they said, he maketh both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak, present. You know what their message was? Jesus made all things well for us. And he can do the same thing for you. 
What He's done for me, He can do for you. And here's the point I want to close with. After you come to Jesus, you should go for Jesus. That's the Christian life. It's coming and it's going. You don't just come to Jesus and receive your spiritual healing. No, you come, receive, and you go and give. There are women and men, just like the woman and man in our story, who are hurting and searching and desperate for a change in their life. And they're in your circle of influence. They're waiting for you to go to them. I have found the best people to go to them are people who can say, I've been to Jesus and he's made all things well in my life. Now let me tell you how you can do the same thing for you. And your story can be very simple. For me, I just tell them, hey, back in the past, somewhere in the early 90s, I was seven years old, Jesus made all things well for me. And I'm here to tell you, he can do the same thing in your life today. Do you know why? So many people who come to Jesus never bring anybody else to Jesus or haven't done so in a really long time. You know why? Because they've gotten over it. They've gotten too used to being saved. The reason why these men in the story went everywhere and published the goodness of God, even though Jesus told them to not do it, was because they couldn't get over what Jesus did for them. Maybe today you just need to take a trip down memory lane, and remember for a moment that you were just like the woman in this story, a dog unworthy to sit at the table. But God in His grace found you where you were, saved you just as you were, and put you at His table of grace. And you need to remind yourself that because of that, you're not eating the crumbs anymore. On a Sunday morning in July in 2021, you're eating a full course meal of God's goodness and forgiveness and justification in your life. And when you realize how blessed you are to have a spot at the table, I think you'll be more proactive about getting others to the table with you. It's like this. Whenever you really enjoy a meal, I mean, your wife can really, really, she's honed in on this particular recipe. And it's like, it's her go-to you want other people to taste it. My wife can make some mean banana pudding. Mean banana pudding. And I tell her, hey, when, when we invite people over, I want you to make some of that there banana pudding. You know why? Because it tastes so good. I've been satisfied from it, Bradley, so I want other people to see if they can't get satisfied from it. So for some of you, it's, it's your wife's fried chicken. I'd like to come over and give that a taste. For others, it's their homemade pizza or it's their lasagna or it's their pot roast or it's the way your husband smokes a steak or grills out a chicken or whatever the case might be. But you know what I'm saying? For those that have been saved and you're sitting and eating at the table of God's grace, if it still tastes good to you, you and other people tasting it with you. The reason why you haven't invited anybody to the table with you for a long time is because you've gotten used to it. A steak for you is turned into a TV dinner. You can eat at God's table of grace every Sunday. Every morning when you feast in His Word. And it's just stale. Same old thing. It's been a long time since the idea of God saving you by His grace has brought you to your knees. And the reason why we don't share it, the reason we don't go after people is because we've come, we've received, our bellies are full. And we're just kind of used to doing our own thing. God help us.
Let me help you with something. Last Sunday morning, I gave you a practical application. Every time you wash your hands, say a prayer. Purify my heart. I got a good one for you this week. Every time you sit at your table to eat this week, say a prayer silently, or you can just word it out loud as you pray and thank God for your food. And simply say this, God, thank you for saving my soul. Every time you pull your chair up to your physical table at your house or at a restaurant, in your mind or even out loud, say, God, thank you for letting me sit at your table of grace. Because if you stay thankful for your salvation, it won't be long before God puts somebody in your path and you can invite them to the table with you. Yeah. Stand, everybody, to your...